Anybody here remember a program called American Gladiators? Yeah? It was wonderful, wasn't it? In fact, when I remember the 80s, I remember drinking like a glass bottle Coke while Michael Jackson's playing on the stereo and American Gladiators is on the television. It was a program where they would go get big athletes and they would do these feats of strength and race against each other and against the clock. And I remember watching it thinking, wow, those people can do amazing things. Well, more recently, they've come out with a, a successor show called The American Ninja Warrior. I'm not as big on that one, but they've upped the game. You now have to run across a tightrope where there's freezing water that will practically kill you down below and all this sort of thing. And they've had to up their game because at this point in history, it's easy to see people do amazing things. Go on YouTube and it's full of this sort of thing. I remember watching a video of a 12-year-old boy take three Rubik's Cubes that were all messed up and juggle them. And while he juggled them, he solved them. I'm pretty sure no camera tricks or anything. He put them down and hit the, the buzzer and boom. I, I, you can watch these old videos of Bruce Lee. Ever see Bruce Lee with the nunchucks and somebody's playing ping pong against him and he's swinging the nunchucks. He's always hitting the, and you watch it in slow motion. You go, oh my goodness. That's amazing. You can watch people do amazing things, extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. It can actually make you feel a little bit kind of down on yourself. I can't do anything like that. And yet, when we read the book of Acts, we see that it's not a story of extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, but an extraordinary God using super regular people to do supernatural things. In fact, we often find the passive voice being used here so that we don't attribute this stuff to the wrong agent. They were being added to their number. Now, if I'm grading a paper and an English teacher and I see that, I write, no, 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 not passive voice. Who's adding them? They're being added. It's a way to say God is the one ultimately who is doing these things. And if we are following him, we can look at our life kind of in a passive voice where I, I think I've accomplished something, but I have to acknowledge this was being done because God was involved. And, and I love this quote from Ian Thomas. He founded the Torchbearer Bible Schools. He says, the Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, your personality, your willpower, your talent, your money, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. And we see what it looks like when people truly begin living the Christian life here. And, and I'm sure you've noticed at this point, if you've been with us this whole time, we've made it through a few chapters of the book of Acts. You've seen this back and forth in the narrative. That it's, it's alternating between the church in its community. Right? What's the church doing when they're together, when they're behind closed doors? We see them in prayer, in the breaking of bread, in the apostles' teaching and caring for each other's needs. And then it'll alternate and look at the church interacting with the world, which is twofold. One, they're bringing people to Christ and into the fold, left and right, but they're also facing increasing opposition. There's a deep conflict with the broader culture, particularly at this early point with the religious hierarchy and the, the religious power structure of the day. And both of these elements are vital to the church. 
And it has continually been a temptation for churches to go to one extreme or the other. You can go to the extreme of being all about that in behind the closed doors. It's our community. It's just us. We're closed off. Right? It's, it's all about fellowship. It's all about us growing. It's all about, it's all about me, 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 and what can I get out of it? And worst case scenario, this becomes a, a social club. Almost monastic or Amish at first, where we say all those outside are outside, and we're, we're the few who are inside, and before long we don't even notice or remember that there are any outside. The other extreme is to say, no, 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 it's only about the church's relationship with those outside. It's, it's all about us interacting with the world, and anytime we're not interacting with the world, we're off track, and we're sinning. And, and we're, we have to be winning many people to Christ, and, and, and we have to be doing it all the time. And if we stop for a moment, and, and we do something that doesn't have that at its end, shame on us. And so everything becomes outreach. Worship is outreach. The sermon is outreach. The sacraments are somehow outreach until the world's culture and the world's concerns take over. And you get to the point where churches say, well, you know, we're just going to even skip the worship service, so we can go out and do the work in the community because we've decided that's the only thing that's important. In fact, the only reason the church exists is for them, right? And the answer from the scriptures, especially the book of Acts, is a resounding nope. Both of these extremes are unbiblical because both of these things are important. We need time together as the church to rest and have a holy convocation, to open the scriptures to read them together, to recharge, because life has been kicking us around for six days. We need time to pray for and with one another and grow closer. We need time in each other's homes. Yes, we need time together as the church. I've often heard the question asked, is your church inward-focused or outward-focused? And it's asked with the obvious expectation that the right answer is outward-focused. It's got to be both. If it's going to be upward focused, we have to be focused on growing. We have to be focused on growing as believers and disciples and making disciples and growing in that way. And so we are a witness to the world if we can say to the world, look, there's a different life in here that's totally different from the life out there. It's not just a cheap carbon copy because we think that's what will bring you in. In fact, in this passage, the angel says, go and speak to the people the life, or this life. It implies there's something different about the life of a believer. So this is, of course, part two, round two, between the apostles and the Sanhedrin, which is the kind of religious supreme court or high council of the day. They met in the temple. They were made up of all the sects that had any power in Judaism, uh, particularly the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, which was the priestly sect. And before we saw Peter and John, when all they'd done is give a guy the ability to walk and then attributed it to Jesus and preach the gospel, they were dragged before the Sanhedrin. And they were ordered after they testified that it was in the name of Jesus we did this, that was the authority by which we did it, they were ordered never, ever to speak by that name again. And after many threats, they said, all right, you understand? And Peter said, well, you're the high council. You're going to have to judge for us whether it's right for us to obey God or to obey men. Dropped the mic and walked out. And now we see 
This is going to escalate, and this problem is not going to go away. And, and that this third and, and final summary introduces a church that is in a beautiful situation that includes persecution. Verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of them dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. We see here the third picture of congregational life. You know, the, the pictures have been coming in chapter 2 and chapter 4, and now, and now we see another picture here, and this is going to be the last one, but it paints a picture of a church that is triumphant and flourishing, a church that cannot be stopped, that's bulldozing over all the boundaries and converting anything that moves. And with all this growth, perhaps the only place that can accommodate them is Solomon's colonnade, or also called Solomon's portico. It was a, a large meeting place in the temple, rather a public place. It was part of the, the temple structure built onto the side of the complex, not unlike our portico out here, except actually it was completely unlike our portico out here. It was this big, grand, beautiful thing, a ceiling held up by a row of double columns. And people would go there to be inspired and to discuss the scriptures and to hear teaching. And that's what the early church was doing. This is a public place. It's where Peter gave his great sermon in Acts 3. It's where the apostles were arrested the first time. And we see here that they are doing signs and wonders regularly. This is an answer to prayer, by the way. Remember, after the first time they were arrested, they started to pray, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it came to the point where people knew they were doing miracles. Signs and wonders were happening. Word was spreading. And they would come, and they would find the route that they were taking, I guess, from the upper room to the temple, and they would drag their sick friends, their, their paralyzed friends, into the street so that as Peter walked by, his shadow would be cast across them. Now, I'm tempted as a Baptist to say, wow, that's superstitious. And yet, we know from Scripture that this sort of thing happens. We know that Elisha's bones, when a dead man was dropped on them, caused him to come back to life. I believe that happened. Why? Because God's word says so. We will find later in the book of Acts that uh, Paul, has, when he touches handkerchiefs, they somehow are able to heal people later on. And we, of course, we have the story of Jesus walking on his way to the home of Jairus and a woman who'd been afflicted for years with a horrible illness touched just the hem of his garment and was healed. And so there's great healing power in the apostles because it had been bestowed on them by Jesus. The authority to cast out demons and to heal. And all who were brought were afflicted, they were, they were healed, and they were delivered. And so those who were afraid to join this new Jesus movement, even they held them in high esteem, we are told here. Why wouldn't they join? Well, we're given a little hint. There is a cost to following 
Jesus, to following with these apostles. What did they do? They arrested them and put them in the public prison. When the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, was filled with jealousy. Now, it's not a love of truth that motivates this persecution. That can happen, even a misplaced love of truth. That's not what they're about. If, if that were the case, they would say, you know what, let's have a public debate. We'll show all of the people why what you're teaching is lies, and it flies in the face of the Scriptures. We want to put it out in the open and, and to discredit it. No, that's not what motivates them. We're told plainly it is their jealousy. Because these men in the, in the Sadducee sect had all come from the right families, they'd gone to the right schools, they'd climbed the right ladders, and yet these unlearned, ordinary guys were stealing away their followers, just as Jesus had. And it was a zero-sum game. If Christ increases, they decrease. Now John the Baptist rejoiced in that, and we ought to as well, but they are threatened by it. And so they threaten in return. They say, you, you've got to stop. We won't permit it. And their jealousy fuels the persecution of the church. They can't elicit the same sort of admiration and loyalty as the apostles. So instead of even trying, they just say, we'll take them down a few notches. It starts by throwing John and Peter, who are really the two most prominent, the leaders, into prison to cool their heels overnight and to show the world they, they're at our mercy. We're still in charge. That doesn't work. And so they turn up the persecution. The high priest arose. This is Caiaphas or Annas. It's, it's unclear as to who exactly the people are thinking of. Earlier in Acts, Annas is called the high priest, but both of them are kind of in the position. Both of them are men to whom Jesus was dragged on Monday Thursday, where there was a, a great uh, kangaroo court, which was unjust, and, and where Jesus himself was, was uh, lied about, and there were false witnesses that were paid, both of them were someone to be contended with because they had power given to them by Rome. I've seen the bone box, the ossuary, where Caiaphas's bones were and where his name is written on the outside in Aramaic. He was a real guy. This isn't a mustache-twirling cartoon villain. This is a real man who wielded real power, and these apostles understand just how real this is. And he's determined to crush his enemies here. Look at the escalation. In, in the last time we, we saw him uh, flexing a bit, when Peter and John are dragged before him, we're told in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, that they were annoyed. Right? I mean, I get annoyed all the time. They were greatly annoyed because the, the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were greatly annoyed, but just annoyed. In this passage, we're told that they become enraged and want to kill the apostles. It's escalating. This time, it's not just a couple of them, but all of them. They're really looking to nip this thing in the bud as if it hasn't already grown way beyond their control. The kind of jealousy we see here doesn't even think logically. It reminds us of, of Joseph's brothers. When they said, grab him, throw him in a pit. I don't know, we'll tell dad that he was eaten by a, a wild animal. Jealousy is such a horrible and poisonous thing. It poisons God's people, even right in the, in the holy place of the temple. And it has no place in the church. 
It's always poisonous. There's a danger of it even amongst preachers. Oh, I heard that that preacher's church is growing and growing and growing. Ah, feel a little jealousy. Oh, I heard something bad happened over there. There's always a devil sitting there waiting to say, that's great, isn't it? Isn't that great? Didn't happen to you. Happened to somebody else. Makes you look better. Jealousy is, is, is something so vile. It gets in like, like leaven and spreads, and here it is spreading. And in verse 19 and, and 20 and 21, we see how it manifests. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Beautiful irony here is that the Sadducees, who have arrested them, don't believe in angels. <laughs> and it's an angel that comes and arrests them. This is the beginning of the humor in this passage. Now, they're released, but not just to take off. They're released for a purpose. They're released to go and do a particular task. Go back into the house of God and speak all the words of this Life. It's almost verbatim what Jeremiah is told to do in Jeremiah 26. We see here that ultimately every heavy-handed effort to quash the gospel and the spread of God's word will fail because God is sovereign. But when the officers came, this is, this is great. The high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. I love the fact that the angel locked the door on the way out. Just to troll them? That's wonderful! And, and it's just crazy to me how spiritually blinded these men are. These blind guides leading the blind that they've both fallen into a pit. That they don't stop when, when supernaturally their enemies are released from prison. They don't stop and say, wait a minute, could we be in the wrong? Is God here? Only one of them even says, maybe we're fighting against God. And all the rest only begrudgingly say, that's a possibility. But it gets funnier because, because we have these raging angry priests and Sadducees saying, oh, we'll find them. We're you send the temple guard to the upper room and to all their usual hangouts, and we're going to go to the homes of every one of their known as... What's that? Oh, they're exactly where we found them last time, doing exactly what they were doing last time. Go and get them. And they went and they brought them, but not by force. Why? Because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. It was early morning, it was daybreak. The temple would be packed with people there for the, the coming sacrifices, the morning sacrifices that would begin. And they, they knew that the people loved the apostles more than they loved the leadership. And so they said, well, let's just invite them. And the apostles, they came. And we see here that, that uh, in verse 27... They had them brought in, and they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He, 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 
the, the high priest can't understand why he made a pronouncement and they didn't fall in line. He'd already made an example of their rabbi, and that didn't affect them. He'd already made it clear what would happen to them, and that didn't sway them. What more does he have to do? And just picture this scene, because it would be overwhelmingly intimidating. The Sanhedrin is 71 men, all in beautiful vestments that all have built into them these symbols of authority. They would sit on basically thrones, these seats of judgment. Behind them would be disciples of what are called the learned men, which is hilarious because they're now standing uh, in judgment over these unlearned men who keep making fools of them. And then in front of them were the court clerks, and they were all arrayed in their, in their vestments and, and finery. The whole thing in a semicircle with those who were accused down beneath. It would be so very intimidating. And they've told them, you are not to speak in this name. With it, they have threatened them with many threatenings. And listen to me, if you evangelize in this world, if you proclaim the gospel, you will eventually be warned not to speak in this name. At some point, in some context. Probably not under threat of death if you don't go into the foreign mission field. But in some way, maybe by increasingly oppressive laws and ordinances, maybe by workplace guidelines, at least by the, the overwhelming pressure of the culture around us, which would shame us for insisting that there is one way to peace with God and that that name, Jesus, is the key. And they won't be intimidated. They hear these words, and this is the original speaking truth to power, because this is the ultimate truth the gospel, and those who hold the power cannot sway them, cannot intimidate them, cannot stop this church from moving forward. As the persecution is intensified, so does the apostles' response. Their closing line from last time is their opening line this time. You notice that? They pick up right where they left off. In fact, it's changed a little, though. They've amped it up. Then it was, you tell us. Is it right for us to obey God or men? This time it's, we'll tell you. It's not right for us to obey men. We must obey God. And then we see it's no longer just a duet. This is now an entire apostolic chorus. They are all there, all together, all steadfast, immovable, proclaiming the gospel. And those who were listening in the Sanhedrin, they knew that this dynamic is how God works. They've seen it because they know the scriptures. They've seen Elijah standing before Jezebel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defying King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel before Darius, or even those Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin that only had the Pentateuch and didn't have any other scriptures. They've seen Moses before Pharaoh. And we continue to see this, the same dynamic. As we read the book of Acts, we see Paul before the Sanhedrin and before Felix and Festus and eventually before Caesar. It continues throughout church history. We see Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms, where the enemies of the gospel ironically are claiming with the authority of Peter that they must be obeyed. Peter who has said we must obey God rather than men. And what is their main complaint? I mean, the apostles have been doing all sorts of stuff that technically they could use against them. Look how creative they got with Jesus. There's all sorts of things they could bring up, but they don't say you're, you're coming up against Rome. They don't say we're going we're gonna to turn people against you and poison. No, they, they say one thing. You've been teaching in that name. You've been teaching in that name. They hate 
that name. It's poisonous to them. They, they, they focus on it. Why? Because it reminds them of the sham of a court that they set up in order to shed innocent blood. It reminds them of the missing body and the reports from all over Jerusalem for 40 days that this Jesus, whom they had killed by intrigue and lies and injustice, is alive and well. It reminds them that even after they soiled their hands and made a mockery of their sacred sacred position as priests and teachers of the law to stop this Jesus, that it didn't even work. And this name continues to offend. That name is powerful. And those who would say, no, it's not, they often show that they believe it is. You know, I listen to a ton, a ton of podcasts, and I've noticed it's become completely omnipresent that people, whether it's NPR or whoever who's putting the thing out, people will take the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word without a second thought. I tell you what, I read comic books until I was about 23 years old. That's a little embarrassing, but less so in this current climate. Stop buying them because all of a sudden, instead of squiggle, 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 it would say the name of Jesus Christ as if it were a four-letter curse word. I don't need that. It's, it's, it's almost as if the, the enemy says, well, we can't stop it, so why don't we take this name and try to make it mean nothing, and yet that has failed. How often do you hear someone on the, on the news or, or in a movie or even out on the street take the name of Muhammad in vain or use the name of Buddha as if it were a four-letter curse word or say, oh, Joseph H. Smith. Doesn't happen. People know the name of Jesus is different. And these, these men won't even utter the name. They're afraid to say it. They say, this name and this man. They don't say Jesus. And then, and then their other objection, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Let me remind you, just a couple months earlier, Pilate had said, I am innocent of this man's blood. To which the Sanhedrin said, let his blood be upon us. No problem. And suddenly now they've got amnesia. Again, we see this great irony. As Peter implores them, if only they would believe and repent, his blood would be upon them, bringing the forgiveness of sins, even the sin of putting Jesus to death. And I love what Peter does here. It's it's Peter's go-to move. No longer is it pull out the sword and start swinging. Now it's preach the gospel. So they're dragged before them. They say, we told you to stop preaching this gospel. And Peter says, well, in all fairness, and then he starts preaching the gospel to them again. And he does it in such a clear and concise way. Verse 30, the crucifixion as resurrection of Jesus. By the way, Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection either. He'll proclaim it. He doesn't care. 31, the ascension. Verse 32, the witnesses. All of it is present. And Peter brings up this thing that they thought they had in their hip pocket, that Jesus was hung on a tree. And Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Peter says, yeah, you hung him on a tree. He understands what Paul will later write to the Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In fact, the death of Christ on the tree means that the continued sacrifice in the temple is an abomination that will bring desolation. More and more priests, we've been told, have been seeing that and coming to faith. This also is upsetting to the Sadducee uh, uh, sect. 
Now notice here too, as the gospel is proclaimed, that it's both the forgiveness and the repentance that are gifts from Jesus Christ. You don't come with the repentance and God says, oh, you got got repentance? Here, here's some forgiveness. No, he grants them both. The whole thing is of grace. The whole thing is of God. And that will become very important here in a moment. When they heard this, we're told in verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But one man was the voice of reason. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400 joined. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Wise words. Who is this guy, Gamaliel? He was a Pharisee. He was a well-respected expert in the law. And he's been around. He's seen enough. He's wise and everyone knows it. He's the grandson of Rabbi Hillel which is like more impressive than being the grandson of, of Billy Graham or somebody. Rabbi Hillel was the most famous rabbi of the day. The Talmud talks about Gamaliel. It presents him as the president of the Sanhedrin. Perhaps the why, that's why he can stand up and speak and everyone listens and goes along with what he has to say. And what he does is he reminds the people of a couple of things that happened in the past. Judas of Galilee. Here's a guy, remember the census that, draw, that drew uh, Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to register where Jesus was born? Well, during that time, when Quirinius was governor, this guy, Judas of Galilee, encouraged Jews not to register in the census and not to pay taxes to Rome and not to fall in line in any way. And he went so far as to attack people who did register and pay taxes, to burn their homes, to steal their cattle. It was a big upstart movement and it was smashed down by Rome. And as soon as the leader died, the whole thing kind of ended. Jesus even says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Well, in this case, the shepherd stayed struck, and the sheep just kind of disappeared. Then we have Theodos, who led a revolt that failed as well, and we don't know much about this guy. Now, there was a man by this very name who led a revolt in A.D. 44, which is quite a ways after Quirinius, and quite a ways after Judas uh, of Galilee. And it was even after, allegedly, these words were spoken in the council by Gamaliel. And many people have said, see, the Bible's got mistakes in it. Uh, Apparently these words were spoken in like 33, 34, 35 AD, and yet this thing didn't happen until 44 AD. I think that just makes the point that Gamaliel was making. There was another guy by this same name. We don't even remember him. We don't even know who he was. His name has been forgotten to time. And Gamaliel's saying, so it's the same thing with this name. You're so worried about the name of Jesus because it's, at the moment, the name people are saying, but if it's just of men, it will go away. Literally, it will be overthrown. And what I think is very ironic and and wonderful 
is that Gamaliel, as he describes these two things, he says, these two false messiahs arose. They rose. Same Greek word that is used to describe Jesus, arising, rising from the dead. See, they rose up and went down. Jesus was killed, went down into the grave and rose up. And now he is alive forevermore, as we heard from the book of Revelation. And so Gamaliel's advice, it's wise. It's in keeping with the words of Jesus. He said, whoever is not against us is for us. Hold on and wait and see what becomes of this. It's good advice to keep today, by the way, in a very reactionary culture where everyone needs to have a response to everything right away. I've been discouraged in recent years when people are quick to write books condemning someone, a group or a movement or whatever is happening. I've seen people writing books condemning uh, some signs and wonders and miracles that allegedly happened, saying, no, 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 that's demonic. It's all, it's from Satan. Careful. Gamaliel reminds us, you might find yourself fighting against God. Jesus reminds us, if you attribute to Satan what the Holy Spirit is doing, that's the unforgivable sin. And so this Gamaliel does bring wise words. St. Paul studied under him. Perhaps was still studying under him at this point. Perhaps was present in the room. If only he'd taken Gamaliel's advice. Now there is an ancient Christian tradition that Gamaliel converted to Christianity, was baptized by Peter and John. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church venerates him as a saint. It's possible. It could be that this is how Luke in his research, got the inside information of these executive session meetings, what was said, what went down. It's possible. But even if that's the case, here Gamaliel stops short of saying, and perhaps we too should look into this, into what makes this Messiah different from those others who've come and gone. You see, he leaves open the possibility that this is God at work. But if that's the case, neutrality should not be an option. I wonder why he didn't say that. Was he just afraid to go that far? Is it possible that because he was part of the the vote that was cast to put Jesus to death, he felt he'd crossed a line he couldn't uncross? I know people today who say, I'm much like those those in in the temple courts who, who thought highly of Jesus but didn't dare to join the apostles. Those, those who kind of from a distance said, oh, yeah, I see, I see some truth there, but you don't know what I've done. God would not accept me. I've crossed that line, and I can't uncross it. And the good news is there is no line you cannot uncross because Jesus hung on a tree and became a curse so that the curse would be lifted from your shoulders by putting your faith in him. Don't, don't be neutral any longer. If you're, if you're sitting in the back of the church, well, I kind of dabble in this, but I don't know. The time for neutrality, that's come and gone. Choose this day, as Joshua says. Whom you will serve. Jesus will accept you. Jesus stands arms open wide. And Gamaliel was right about this. If it was of man, it would just disappear. If it's of God, it will flourish. And spoiler alert, this little upstart religion not yet called Christianity, didn't just fade away. In fact, it's lasted now millennia and spread and grown and changed the world and moved into every continent and every people and continues to spread and bring the forgiveness of sins to people who are lost and in darkness, bringing light and life. 
The passage ends on an up note, even though it ends with a beating. We read, They took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So Gamaliel, he convinced them not to kill them, but they still beat them. They want to get the message across. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The Messiah is this Jesus. If the authority comes from human will, its power will fail. If it comes from the Holy Spirit, it will succeed. And the the disciples together rejoiced and thanked God. When they were scourged, notice they they don't say, wait a minute, foul, I didn't sign up for this. They all had signed up for exactly this. Mark 13, what did Jesus say? Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It's also, by the way, if you follow Jesus, what you signed up for. And still, I say, stop sitting on the fence and being neutral. If you were to somehow receive this punishment, the 40 lashes minus one, two on the back, one on the chest, two on the back, one on the chest, until you had reached 39, what would be your response? Well, we see what happened here. It was the opposite of the desired effect on two levels. First of all, rather than crushing the spirits of the apostles, it caused them to rejoice for being found worthy to suffer for the name. And rather than taking them down a few pegs in the eyes of the people, it lionized them. And it unified them all the more. It didn't help this little false Messiah movement to burn itself out. It caused them to pray harder, to preach more boldly, and as a result, for the church to grow yet more. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. These words are ringing in the ears of all twelve apostles as they leave the presence of the Sanhedrin with their lives intact. They give praise, they leap for joy in the face of suffering, knowing that God in his providence continues to be at work. We see this, there are literally Tens of thousands of stories that we could share today where this same thing has been happening in the days since the book of Acts was written. One example I was reading about this past week took place in Korea. See, Japan took control of Korea in 1937 in the lead up to the Second World War. And what followed was a season of occupation and persecution And many Korean Christians endured horrible mistreatment and imprisonment and even torture for their faith. One of these Christians was a Korean music teacher named Esther Ahn. And when she was questioned by the superintendent of the Pyongyang Police Department, he demanded to know what she thought about the state and what she thought about the worship at the shrine. And knowing she could be immediately killed for her beliefs and for confessing Christ, She testified, I shall never break his commandment, even if I might be killed for it, because his commandments reveal his love for us. I can't offend God. The law of God stands above the law of any 
state. She, she later on reflected, in that moment I was excited. If I should be sentenced to death for this, it would mean that the task of my life was accomplished. I had only to speak boldly, calmly, freely, and clearly as Jesus would do. After being punished for her Christian beliefs, she began to realize what it would mean for her to testify to the truth of the gospel. That if she continued to live, she would be an ongoing testimony that he is alive. And that if she was put to death, she would be a martyr for her faith. And no, no truer picture of devotion to Christ could be imagined. Eventually her life was spared and she was freed. But what a beautiful picture for us. A reminder that this stuff in the book of Acts, it's not just old news. It's happening today. And if you've ever proclaimed the gospel and been warned in any way, let's just, come on, not time and place, let's not, let's not speak in this name of Jesus. We'll gladly accept it if people want to use that name as a swear word, but let's not bring it up in that way. Remember, God is at work, and his word never returns void. And every heavy-handed attempt to quash the spread of the gospel will fail, even or perhaps because of the suffering of his people. If we are truly followers of Jesus, we will be willing to walk in his footsteps, suffer in ways that he suffered, be mocked, be called evil, be called haters, be called liars, be called backwards and stupid. We'll be willing to endure in the name of Jesus Christ. We will, like these apostles, say we must obey God rather than man. And we will trust that we will see him at work. That we will see in that passive tense many being added to the number of the disciples. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would embolden us in this day, in this place. The Lord, as we leave here, we would be bold and speak freely and clearly and calmly as that great woman prayed so many years ago, that, Lord, we would know that when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are at work. Your Holy Spirit is at work. And that, Lord, we would take even being rebuked and threatened no longer to speak these words as an opportunity to again speak these words like the Apostle Peter did in Acts chapter 5. Lord, we pray that we would see as a result great growth in your kingdom in the city of Lansing that there would be a great harvest of souls, that we would be sowing seed and trusting that you would be making them to grow. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.